It's time for Legally Speaking, where we benefit from the knowledge and insight of Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, a pleasure as always. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Great to be here. I would suspect that much of the world was watching the case of involving Meng Wanzhou yesterday, a decision being released by a court here in the province of British Columbia. And as you have helpfully described, the Minister of Justice not off the hook. How does this all fit together? Indeed. Uh, so uh, there were a number of things which I think were important about the decision yesterday. Uh, but the, I think the first thing to appreciate is that in Canada, the decision about whether you're going to extradite somebody to another country to face trial there is not a decision which is made solely by a court. Uh, and uh, Chief uh, Associate Chief Justice Holmes made that clear. Um, she's an experienced person dealing with criminal matters, and her decision is uh, entitled Ruling on Double Criminality, and uh, that's what that is. Um, the, in Canada, the decision about whether to extradite somebody has some elements of the decision that are made by a, a court. For example, this double criminality decision, which we'll get into uh, in a moment. And then another assessment as to whether uh, a person could be convicted uh, on the evidence presented by the requesting state. But ultimately, there is a political decision to be made uh, because the Minister of Justice needs to decide, are you going to actually extradite the person? And so that's why the Minister of Justice, Mr. Lametti, is not off the hook. Uh, I'm sure from his perspective uh, watching this, had the judge decided that the uh, uh, charge for which the United States was seeking Ms. Smung's extradition didn't meet that threshold, well, that would have been the end of the matter, and off she would have gone. Uh, so the, the decision yesterday doesn't mean that she goes back automatically. It simply means that this part of the test for extradition has been met. Now, the, the other thing which was interesting about the decision that came out yesterday is that it gave us some more insight into what exactly is she alleged to have done? You know, why is the United States asking uh, that she be extradited uh, there uh, to face trial? Um, and that was has been to this point a little bit obscure, and we've got some uh, additional details about that in the decision. Now, the underlying uh, allegation uh, is that. Uh, Ms. Meng, on behalf of Huawei, the large Chinese um, telecommunications company, uh, arranged for a very large loan from a consortium of international banks to the tune of $1.5 billion uh, between about 2013 and 2015. Uh -huh. And at that time, and still, the United States has a host of uh, restrictions on uh, business being done with Iran. Uh, Canada has had restrictions. They varied over time. We still have some, but they're not as extensive as the ones that are in place in the United States. Huawei established a subsidiary in Iran called Skycom, uh, which originally they owned all of it, uh, and Ms. Meng was on the board of directors. Because of the uh, sanctions the U.S. had in place, Huawei professed, allegedly, to no longer have control over that subsidiary uh, so as to allow business to be done through this, quote, independent local subsidiary. Uh, and Ms. Meng is alleged to have done things including uh, make representations at a back room of a restaurant in Hong Kong in 2013 to HSBC and this consortium of banks 
claiming that they are no longer controlling this Skycom company in Iran. And those representations were made in order to arrange for that large loan that I mentioned. And so the issue for the judge was whether the allegation of fraud, which is what she's being charged with, uh, would also have met the test of fraud in Canada. And the argument her lawyers made was essentially, look, Canada didn't have the same prohibitions on dealing with Iran in place at the time, therefore this wouldn't have amounted to an offense in Canada. So that was their argument, a good uh-huh. argument, uh-huh. Uh, but the judge concluded uh, that wasn't sufficient uh, to uh, establish that dual criminality didn't apply. And the judge carefully analyzed through what are the elements of fraud uh, and concluded that really it's the essence of the offense that's important. And the judge made this point, and it's I think a good one for people to be aware of generally, yes. that Fraud can include making false representations uh, to somebody, even if the person you're making it to doesn't, in fact, lose something. And so here would be an example of that in day-to-day life. Let's say somebody was a professional gambler, right? And they wanted to get a mortgage to buy a home. If you told your bank, I'm a gambler, that's how I plan to pay my mortgage back, the bank might well say, I just don't think we can lend you the money. What if you have a bad run of luck at poker and, you know, we don't get repaid? Indeed. So if the fictitious gambler were to say, no, no, I, I in fact work for the government and here are a bunch of pay stubs which they've doctored up on their computer or something, right? Yes. Even if the gambler pays the mortgage back as promised, they have still engaged in fraud because the lender was in fact put at risk, even if the risk didn't crystallize. Interesting. So it's, it's not sufficient to be lucky, it's sufficient to simply take that risk. Correct. If you lie to, for example, a lender, causing them to take a risk they would not have otherwise taken, they rely upon your lies, you've committed fraud even if you repay the money. And so the argument by the United States, which succeeded on this application, was, well, look, Uh, The allegation here is that she lied to them about not being in control of this subsidiary, this uh, Skycom company in Iran. Uh, And they allege that was was false, that in fact Huawei controlled that company. They said, you know, the, the people working there apparently had Huawei email addresses, security badges, and used Huawei stationery. So, <laughs> that's, you know, uh, it's, it's not a very good cover-up, but uh, that's, no, that's beside the point, I suppose. Probably pretty compelling evidence, but, you know, not tested yet. All um, right. And so the theory would be, look, what you did by lying to the consortium of banks to get your $1.5 billion loan put those banks in jeopardy because they could have been charged with breaching the uh, U.S. restrictions that were in place in terms of dealing with Iran. Interesting. Now, they might not have been, but that would be just like the gambler who lied about working for the government to get the mortgage. That was the argument, uh, and that argument carried the day with the judge. And so the judge concluded uh, that uh, these allegations uh, do meet that test of dual criminality, even though... Um, you, a Canadian bank, for example, if you went and told a Canadian bank, no, no, I don't control that subsidiary, you really wouldn't have been putting them in any jeopardy at all because Canada didn't have any prohibitions on dealing with Iran. And so 
That's how the defense tried to analyze that issue of dual criminality, but the judge didn't accept it here, and so that means the case carries on. It doesn't mean that she's immediately uh, sent off to face trial in the United States. Um, She's got other arguments to make in court. Um, One of the arguments is an argument she's making some abuse of process argument, and she's also going to make an argument about whether the um, evidence uh, alleged, if accepted, could lead to a conviction. Those are both things that a court will deal with. But even then, it's over to the Minister of Justice, and the decision for the minister is, do you want to actually extradite this person? Now, there are a whole bunch of things that might go into that political calculation. Uh The other thing which shouldn't be forgotten, and it really brings into stark contrast the Canadian and the communist Chinese justice system, Uh um, is that shortly after there was an arrest on this warrant and this process started, China essentially arrested or abducted, I guess depends on your perspective, two different Canadians, both first name Michael, so I've got some uh, connection there, a Michael Spavor and a Michael uh, Kovrig. They've now spent more than 535 days in jail as a result of that. They haven't received a trial of any kind. Uh, They're sitting in a Chinese prison. Miss Meng, of course, is out on bail, living in a mansion in Vancouver, uh, and is enjoying the, uh, you know, a a fair justice system with an independent judiciary, reasoned decisions that we can all read and look at and assess the quality of the evidence and allegations and so forth. Yes. And so it brings into really sharp relief the difference between the Canadian justice system, right, uh, and what happens to you in China, which yes. looks nothing like that. There's no trial occurring there. Nobody can see what on earth is the evidence against these uh, people, if any. Uh, it would appear effectively they've been just abducted uh, as hostages and kept in jail by the Communist Party in China uh, as retaliation uh, for this arrest. And so that is going to be an interesting thing if you're the Minister of Justice. How do you respond to that? Are you sort of say, oh, my goodness, I'm fearful, I don't want China retaliating in some way? Or maybe you have the opposite reaction when you're making that decision. Because there will be a political decision here to be made. The Minister of Justice, at least at this point, not off the hook. That will have to be decided. Um, and you're dealing with a uh, regime in China uh, that it behaves in that fashion. And so I can tell you, if you were dealing with something other than some state actor, uh, if you had a couple of people taken hostage, effectively, uh, by some organization, you can expect, you can imagine what that uh, response uh, would be to that. Yeah. Uh, so that's what's going on. We can now see, you know, what is she alleged to have done? Anyone's free to read the judgment and assess how the judge came to her uh, decision. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got a completely opaque process uh, whereby the Chinese government uh, has just taken two Canadians and put them in prison, hoping to leverage something out of the government of Canada. Uh, so people have to think carefully about how do you want to respond to that, and how do you want to be dealing uh, with a country that behaves in that uh, fashion. Uh, that appears to be pretty outrageous uh, conduct. Yes. Uh, and we need to, of course, there may be economic and other considerations, uh, but uh, that at its core is how China behaves. Uh, And so uh, that is uh, pretty unsatisfactory uh, conduct, and uh, perhaps we ought to have considerations when dealing with the uh, Communist Party in China 
uh, that go beyond, you know, how much pork can we sell to them uh, if they're going to behave uh, in that fashion. My pronunciation might be off here because I learned this phrase from from a book, but it's fiat justitia ruit calum, let be done justice, though the heavens fall. I should hope that that applies in this case. Yes, I have no doubt that the Associate Chief Justice Holmes uh, is uh, doing uh, her duty. You can read her reasons. It's transparent, clear, right? If somebody might have a different view of it, maybe there'll be an appeal. Who knows? But her decision is a reasoned and transparent one. We can all look at it. We can see it. We can assess it, critique it. That's what we have in Canada as opposed to China. Now, as I said, though, this process is not simply legal. Ultimately, I mean, one of the arguments made was, well, look, what if there's some completely, you know, odious um, law in another country? Uh, For example, one of the arguments made was, well, what if the alleged fraud had to do with, uh, let's say, a person being kept as a slave in another country, right? Would you really just say, well, that's fine, Uh, you know, we're going to extradite the person there? Hmm. And the judge made the point that, well, look, the decision for the minister at the end of the day includes an assessment as to whether it would be unjust or oppressive, uh, having regard to all of the relevant circumstances, to extradite the person to the other country. And so not all of this is a decision the court has to make, uh, and she's very clear about that, right? Some of those judgment calls about values and so on are judgment calls for the minister to make, not the court to make. The court will make determinations about things like does this amount to double criminality, right? Uh, could there be a conviction on the evidence that's presented? Those are legitimate legal questions. Court will answer them. But those big policy questions like what do you want to do here, Minister, uh, should take p- quite properly into account other things, right? You, yes. You've got, for example, uh, Donald Trump um, shooting his uh, mouth off about uh, this case, saying, oh, maybe I could intervene if that would help in some trade negotiation. So... Perhaps, if you're the Minister of Justice, that's something you take into account, even though it might not have a uh, legal effect in the sort of realm of what the court decides. You could have a Minister of Justice say, well, look, you know, I I think this might be uh, being done for some improper purpose, or I don't like uh, the justice system being used as a, you know, bargaining chip in some way. I'm not extraditing the person. Thanks so much. Uh, And that's quite properly a decision for the Minister of Justice. They've got much broader discretion. The court is charged with making these legal determinations, uh, and those policy decisions are political. Uh, And that's broadly how the justice system works in all sorts of things, right? Uh, For Parliament to decide what's going to be the law and what the penalties will, you know, range of penalties will be, this sort of thing. And the court is going to, within constitutional restraints, um, you know, interpret that and apply it. Mm. Uh, And so here, the court makes clear Uh, that, you know, they're not in charge of those uh, decisions, that will be a decision for the minister. Uh, And so, you know, you can see, so far, Canada's been able to say, well, look, this is before the courts, we're allowing the court to deal with that, this is not a political matter, and that's true. Uh, But uh, if all of the legal tests are met, it then becomes a political matter, Hmm. and we'll need to take into account, and the minister will need to take into account, what about that Donald Trump character? What about the people that China's holding in prison for hundreds of days without trial? What are you doing here? Um, And so, you know, it it may well be that the, uh, you know, I'm sure the ministers should be paying careful attention to the next couple of arguments in court to see whether uh, he gets let off the hook. But uh, so far, 
uh, no such luck for him. It is probably beneficial at this point to reflect on the reality that we are caught in a fight between the world's two superpowers at the moment, if we can still use that term. And while it's all well and good to say let justice be done though the heavens fall, if the heavens ever actually did fall and destroy the justice system itself, it seems that the result would be less satisfactory because there would be no justice system and ergo no justice. It's a paradox. Well, I mean, the justice system is going to do its job. Yeah. Chief Justice, you know, Associate Chief Justice Holmes is going to give you a legal decision. Yeah. We just got one the other day. Yeah. If it's appealed, the Court of Appeal will produce a legal decision. Yeah. Those decisions about things like, you know, what about the impact on trade and what do you want to do with the relationship with the U.S. and all those things, those aren't really decisions for the court. Okay. It's not an appropriate kind of decisions for a court to make. Courts are going to make rational, legal decisions with reasons. Hmm. Those kind of decisions like what do you want to do to placate the tweeting president or what do you want to do to placate the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Communist Party in China so as to be able to sell them more farm produce or let the hostages out of jail, right? Those are political decisions, not decisions for Associate Chief Justice Holmes. Yes. He happily doesn't have to make the call about, you know, how do we weigh up the uh, you know, political relationship with the Communist Party versus the, you know, political realities with Donald Trump. Uh, that's something for the Minister of Justice, not the court. Uh, and that's why this decision ultimately is not for the court. It decides the legal issues, political issue. <laughs> Good luck, Minister of Justice. Indeed. The minister yeah. shall need it. Michael, thank you for helping us understand these complicated matters. We're a little late for our first break, so we'll take that now. We'll return in just a moment as Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070 on the air here at CFAX 1070 with Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, I feel I must apologize. I neglected to take our first break on time. We have three and a half minutes left in today's segment and more material than we could satisfactorily cover <laughs> in that time. What would you like to cover? Uh, I think I could probably sum up the case involving Google in that time. All right. The interesting one. Um, so this is a uh, case where there is a uh, law firm that got apparently a bad review left on Google Maps. Uh, and the law firm, interestingly, has decided to sue both Google and the unknown John or Jane Doe, uh, who uh, allegedly left this review. You know, it's sort of a, all they have is the account name. And so there is an application uh, brought uh, to require Google to identify the uh, person who left the bad review on Google Maps. Uh, and uh, there is, in fact, a legal process to compel that to happen. Uh, and the uh, type of order, I think, is a great name. It's called a Norwich order, mm -hmm. which would be a, a order compelling one person who's being sued to turn over information about who the other unknown person is uh, that you're trying to sue. And there's a whole test for it. It's things like, do you have a legitimate claim? Is this person, is the other defendant uh, the only practical source of information? Um, and then ultimately a few other things. And then is it in the interest of justice to do that? Uh, and here, subject to a, a couple of uh, sort of technical things about uh, ensuring that Google was given proper notice of the application and so on, uh, the judge appears to be persuaded uh, that that sort of an order should be made. Uh, so I thought it was an interesting case uh, also in the uh, context of the fact that uh, sometimes people think that they've got some form of anonymity when they're doing things uh, online. Who's going to know? Uh, but uh, as this uh, case uh, shows, uh, if somebody is determined enough, uh, it's possible to uh, get uh, court orders to determine things like, you know, what was the IP address and login information and 
identity and email address and so on of a person who did something uh, online. Uh, so I thought an interesting test, a uh, great uh, name for an order, a Norwich order, uh, and the uh, uh, broad takeaway for people uh, should be if you're leaving things online that might be uh, libelous or uh, uh, improper in some way, uh, the uh, veil of anonymity that you might feel could well wind up getting uh, taken away uh, if somebody is uh, bound and determined to uh, get the required order to reveal who's done something. So uh, watch out if you're uh, leaving things online that might be libelous. You might be subject to a Norwich order uh, and have your identity uh, revealed. Now, I note here that one of the conditions that must be met, the plaintiff must establish that disclosure will facilitate rectification of the wrong. You and I have discussed uh, defamation actions in the past, defamation being a strict liability tort. So while damages are presumed, they are not presumed to be substantial, and $1 may be the rectification. Would that uh, factor into this at all? Would there be sort of an assessment done in advance? No, okay. uh, that wouldn't factor in. This, uh, the test for whether you get one of these orders uh, wouldn't be an assessment as to how much money the claim might be worth. Uh, you do have to meet a number of criteria, right? It's got to be a legitimate okay. claim. Uh, this is the only reasonable source of the information. The interests of justice are in favor of granting it. Uh, but uh, ultimately, the amount of money you might get uh, wouldn't be a factor in terms of whether you get the order. That sure might be a factor in terms of whether you want to bother pursuing the claim. Uh, but here, it would appear that the uh, law firm in question is bound and determined to track down who the unknown person that used the name Shannon Miller might be, <laughs> uh, and uh, it would appear they're uh, uh, well on their way to compelling uh, Google to turn over the information necessary to advance their claim. There we are. One of the many stories we'll watch. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for your knowledge and insight. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, during the